Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Inman Narwin, and I use they-them pronouns. This week, we are talking about something that is very scary, and in terms of things we think about being prepared for, something that is far more likely to impact our lives than, say, a zombie apocalypse. Or, I mean, we're already being impacted by it. It is actively killing us. But if I had to choose between preparing for this and preparing for living in a bunker for 10 years, I would choose this. Oh, golly, I really hope preparing for this doesn't involve living in a bunker for 10 years, though. But the monster of this week is fascism. However, there's a really great solution to fascism. Anti-fascism. And we have a guest today who has spent a lot of their life thinking about and participating in anti-fascism. But first, we are a proud member of the Channel Zero network of anarchist podcasts, and so here's a jingle from another show on that network. Do-do-do-do-do. I'm going to make those pompous academics regret kicking out such a genius. Deciding to build my lab and do my research. The Time Talks Podcast. Have you ever stared at a 500-page book and wish you could just talk to the author about their ideas instead? If so, the Time Talks podcast, part of the Channel Zero Network, is for you, where we discuss history, politics, music, and art with an anti-authoritarian and anarchist perspective. The Time Talks podcast. What's this light? I feel different. The Time Talks podcast. And we're back. And I have with me today writer and organizer Michael Novick, co-founder of the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee, People Against Racist Terror, Anti-Racist Action Network, the Torch Antifa Network, and White People for Black Lives. Michael, would you like to introduce yourself with your name, pronouns, um, and kind of, I guess, like your history in anti-racist, anti-fascist struggles, and a little bit about what you want to tell us about today. Uh, sure. Uh, thanks, uh, Inman. Uh, so, yeah, I am Michael Novick, uh, pronouns he or they. I've been doing anti-racist and anti-fascist organizing and uh, educating and work uh, for many, many decades at this point. I'm in my 70s. I got involved in uh, political activism in kind of anti-war, civil rights, student rights work in the 60s. I was an SDS at Brooklyn College. And uh, I've been doing that work from an uh, anti-white supremacist, anti-capitalist, uh, anti-imperialist perspective. And I think that um, particularly trying to understand fascism in the U.S. context, you have to look at questions of settler colonialism. And, uh, you know, people sometimes use the term racial capitalism. I think that... Uh, land theft, genocide, uh, enslavement of people of African descent, especially is central to understanding the social formation of this country. I was struck by the name of the podcast in terms of live like the world is ending because for a long time I had an analysis that said that the uh, fear of the end of the world had to do with the projection of the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie feels that its rule is coming to an end and therefore thinks the world is coming to an end, but the world will get on fine without the bourgeoisie and the rulers and the imperialists. Uh, except that uh, because of the lease on life that uh, this empire has gotten repeatedly uh, by the setbacks caused by white and male supremacy and the way it undermines people's movements, the bourgeoisie is actually in position to bring the world to an end. I think that's what we're facing is, is a, a global uh, crisis of, of the earth system based on imperialism, based on settler colonialism and exploitation of the earth itself. And so I think... Uh, uh, it's not just preparing for individual survival in those circumstances that we have to think about, but really how we can put an end to a system that's destroying uh, the basis for life on the planet. And uh, so I think that those are critical understandings and, and uh, the turn towards fascism that we're seeing across the, uh, uh, you know, uh, anti-racist uh, actions analysis has always been that fascism is built from above and below and that there are uh, forces within society, I think particularly because of settler colonialism, is a mass base for fascism in this country, as well as uh, an elite preference for it uh, under the kind of circumstances that we're, we're looking at, uh, in which, you know, the, as I say, the basis for life itself is being damaged by imperialism, capitalism, and, and its manifestations. And uh, so the need for uh, extremely repressive measures and for 
genocidal approaches, uh, exterminationist approaches are, are at hand. So I think that, uh, again, I think that the question of, of preparation is preparation for those kinds of circumstances. I think we're uh, living in, in a kind of uh, low-intensity civil war situation already in which you see uh, you know, the use of violence by the state, obviously, but also by non-state forces that people have to deal with. So I think that that's uh, the overall approach that I think we need to think about. And that comes out of, as I say, decades of doing work. I think that there are you know, a few key things that we have to understand about the system, which is that it's not just issues that we face, but there is an enemy. There is a system that is trying to propagate and sustain itself that is uh, inimical to life and inimical to freedom. And that uh, if we want to protect our lives and the lives of other species, and if we want to protect uh, you know, people's freedom going forward, uh, we have to recognize that there's an irreconcilable contradiction between uh, those things and between the the system that we live in. So that's uh, that's kind of a, a kind of a sobering perspective, but I think it's an important one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it is. And it's it's funny something something that you said uh, kind of made a gear turn in my head. So you know, normally, yeah, we do talk about in preparing to live like the world is dying we do usually come at it from this context of that being a bad thing that like where we need to prepare for bad things to happen. But the way you were talking about like fascism and like empire and stuff, um, I suddenly thought, wait, maybe we should live like that world is dying. And like, there is something better ahead. Um, Because, you know, we, we do like to approach um, the show from, I feel like we like to talk about the bad things that are happening and could happen, but also the hopefulness and like the brighter futures that we can imagine. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's really important to have both of those understandings. I think that, uh, you know, people do not actually get well organized out of despair. I think they do, you know, you, you want to have, you know, there used to be a group called Love and Rage, and you have to have both those aspects. You have to have the rage against the machine and the rage against the system that's destroying people. But you have to have the love, you have to have the sense of solidarity and the idea of a culture of not just resistance, but a culture of liberation and a culture of solidarity. And I think that, uh, you know, there is a dialectic between the power of the state and the power of these oppressive forces and the power of the people. And to the extent that the people can exert their power and uh, to the extent we can free ourselves from the, you know, the chains of mental slavery is, you know, uh, here in reggae, you know, that actually weakens the power of the state and the power of the corporations. And they understand that sometimes better than we do. So there is, you know, there's some lessons I, I feel like I've learned. And one of them is that every time there is a liberatory movement uh, based out of people's experiences and, and, and the contradictions they're experiencing in their lives, whether it's, you know, the gay liberation movement, women's liberation movement, the black uh, liberation and freedom struggle, there's always an attempt by the rulers to take that over and to reintegrate it into uh, you know, bourgeois uh, ways of thinking. And, uh, you know, people talk about hegemony and the, the idea that the ruling ideas are the ideas of the ruling class. And I think that, uh, you know, I've seen it happen over and over again with different movements. And so you know, I was involved with uh, Bay Area Gay Liberation uh, in the 80s. And, uh, you know, one of the things that happened there is that you saw very quickly a different language coming up and different issues coming up. And so suddenly the question of gays in the military was put forward, oh, we have to be concerned about the fact that gay people, you know, have to uh, hide when they're in the military. And uh, the question of, you know, normalizing gay relationships in, in the contract form of marriage, you know, came forward. And those were, those were uh, basically uh, efforts to circumscribe and contain the, the struggle for gay liberation and, and to, you know, to break down gender binaries and stuff within the confines of bourgeois conceptions of rights and, and bourgeois integration into, you know, militarism and, uh, you know, contractual economic relationships. And you, you saw that over and over again, you know, in terms of the, the women's liberation movement, then all of a sudden you got, you know, bourgeois feminism and white, you know, white feminism. And I, I think that that's really important to understand because it means that there's a struggle inside every movement to grasp the contradiction that and, and to maintain a kind of self-determined analysis and strategy for how that movement is going to carry itself forward in opposition to what the, the rulers of this society 
who rely heavily on, as they say, white supremacy, male supremacy, settler colonialism, and its manifestations to try to contain and suppress, uh, you know, insurrectionary. And you see the same thing within preparedness movement. There's, you know, maybe the dominant politics and preparedness movement, I think, that I've seen over many years are, are actually white supremacists. They're maintaining the homestead of settler colonial <laughs> land theft. And yeah. so, you know, you have to understand that that's a contradiction in that movement that has to be faced and overcome and struggled with. And, um, you know, I think having that understanding is critical to really trying to chart a path forward that will, you know, kind of break, create wedge issues on our side of the of the uh, ledger, so to speak, and, and begin to break people away from identification with the empire, identification with whiteness, identification with privilege. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the issues I've had over a long time, for example, I struggle for is people's understanding about the question of privilege. Okay. And, you know, I come out of the, uh, as I say, there were, there were struggles in the 60s and early 70s about, you know, what we called white skin privilege. And I think that it, it's critical to understand that privilege functions throughout the system all the time. It's not a, a burden of guilt. It, it's, it's a mechanism of social control. And anything you have as privilege uh, can be taken away. Privilege is a mechanism of, of actually obtaining consent and adherence to, uh, you know, parents use privileges with their kids uh, to try to get their kids to do what they want. Teachers use privileges, you know, with students to get the students to do what they want. Uh, prison guards use privileges with prisoners to get the prisons to, to you know, follow the rules and, and stay, in, you know, incarcerated. And so, you know, that's a mechanism of, of uh imperial domination of settler colonialism and certainly within that context so it's not it's not an illness or a uh, you know it's not something to be guilty about it's something to contend with and deal with and understand that if there are things you have uh, as privileges that you think are yours by right or by merit you're deluding yourself and you can't actually function uh, uh, facing reality so when you understand they are privileges you understand that they're there to obtain your consent and your adherence and your compliance, your complicity, your complacency, and then you have to actually resist those privileges or turn those privileges into uh, weapons that you can use to actually, you know, uh, weaken uh, the powers that be. And I think that that uh, approach is important to understand that, you know, I used to do a lot of work with uh, people in the Philippines struggle, and they talked about the fact that, you know, on some of the uh, outside the U.S. Army bases that were imposed in the Philippines, there was, a, you know, a rank order of privilege, like where people could dig in the uh, garbage dumps of the U.S. military to get, you know, better quality stuff that was being thrown out by the military. And so that kind of hierarchy and, and sense of, you know, uh, organizing people by by hierarchy and by privilege is is how the system functions at every level in the workplace. You know, they, they define, you know, uh, different privileges that people have to try to divide workers from each other and, and, you know, get people to struggle for the privilege as opposed to actually struggle for solidarity and resistance in a different world. And I think that uh, having their understanding begins to free people. You know, uh, Stephen Biko uh, was a leader of the Black Consciousness Movement in South Africa that really helped propel that movement forward. One of the things he said is that the greatest weapon in the hands of the oppressor is the minds of the oppressed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think to the extent that we can start to free our minds of these uh, uh, structures, we can actually begin to weaken the oppressor and strengthen the, uh, you know, uh, struggling and creative powers and, and uh, energies of, of the people to really build a different world. Yeah, yeah. I, sorry, this is going to seem like a silly question because it, it feels very basic, but I, I love to kind of break things down sure. into their base levels. But um, what is fascism? Yeah, I, no, this is a critical question. I think that, uh, you know, uh, an important analysis of fascism that I came across is from uh, Aimé Césaire. And what he said is that fascism is the application in the metropole and the colonizing power of the methods of rule that have been used in the colonies. And I think that has a critical understanding because, as I say, the U.S. is a separate colonial system. So elements of fascism have always been present within the political, economic, and social structure of the United States because they're internally colonized people and stolen land. So if you look at elements of fascism, it's, you know, there's hyper-masculinity, there's, you know, hyper-nationalism, there's uh, obviously, uh, you know, slave labor, there's, uh, you know, an incorporation of a mass base into a, a kind of a visceral identification with a, a, a leader uh, and all of those things really have manifested themselves in, in U.S. history before we use the term fascism. 
And so, you know, the U.S. is based on land theft, on genocide, on, you know, exterminationist policies towards the indigenous people, on enslavement of African people, and also on the incorporation of a mass base based on, on settler colonialism and, and the offering of privileges to a sector of, of the population to say, okay, uh, you know, we're going to participate along with the, the rulers in this system. And uh, so I think that uh, it's important to get that understanding because, uh, you know, people often think that fascism is an aberration or it's a, you know, it's a particularly extreme form of, of uh, a dictatorial rule or something like that. But I think that it, it's really it's it's a way of trying to reorganize people's personalities around their role within an empire, and within uh, you know it's it's uh, trying to as I say control the way people think and uh, control the way people see themselves in relation to other people, and so uh, you know that's why I think that idea that fascism is built from above and below is important because we do see you know fascist elements that have some contradictions with the state. And we've seen, for example, in January 6th, you know, the, the government has gone after certain of these elements because they, you know, have moved too quickly or, you know, the, the same way that, uh, you know, there were premature anti-fascists during the World War II period. And, the, you know, they went after the people in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Uh, there, there are sometimes there are sort of premature proto-fascists in this society that have contradictions with the state. And, uh, you know, they're operating somewhat independently. So. You know, I think that uh, it's important to understand that and that, uh, you know, there are elements in the state and within the uh, uh, different uh, sections of the state that have their own uh, operative uh, plan. So, you know, if you look at the question of like police abuse and police uh, brutality, you know, there's one approach to it that uh, certain elements in the state take, which is about command and control. They're, they're, they want to make sure that they control the police forces and that the individual officers are not acting independently, but are carrying out, you know, cohesive state strategies. Uh, at the same time, there are elements within law enforcement that are, you know, trying to organize uh, individual cops for, you know, organized white supremacy and the uh, same thing in the military. And uh, so there, there are contradictions there that we have to be aware of, but at the same time, they're operating within a framework, as you say, of, of settler colonialism, of organized white supremacy. So uh, one of the things that's come up recently, for example, is this idea that there are, how can there be non-white white supremacists? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think it has to do with the fact that, uh, you know, it's not just your identity or your racial identity that's there, but who do you, what's your identification? Are you identifying with the empire? Are you identifying with the bourgeoisie identifying with this settler colonial project that has, you know, shaped really the whole globe over the course of half a millennium, or are you identifying with the indigenous? Are you identifying with the struggling people? And uh, you know, it's less a it's not a question of your particular skin color, but where you know which side of the line are you on? Yeah, how does attempts by the state or by society to kind of like assimilate? various like oppressed peoples like into the empire like how how does that kind of factor factor into this well if you looked at you know the history of uh, let's say central america is one case in point that you know there were fascist forces in central america and their base was not really within their own society their base was within uh, the empire and so you have death squads operating you had you know mercenaries operating you had contras operating in you know uh, Nicaragua, Honduras, you know Guatemala, carrying out genocidal policies in many cases against indigenous people and people of African descent within their own societies, and uh, so uh, you know that's not exactly fascism in the same way, but it certainly is uh, aspects of police state and death squad activity that has to be resisted. So I think that you know when you see there, uh, Enrique Tarrio or some of these people that you know are, are quote unquote Hispanic you know, operating as proto-fascist, uh, you know, with, with the Proud Boys or these other formations in the United States, that's a manifestation of the same thing, that they're, they're people who have identified themselves with, you know, a system of white supremacy and a system of uh, uh, domination, a system of uh, exploitation. And uh, they're trying to make their own individual uh, piece with it. And they have, uh, you know, collective mechanisms that uh, reinforce that. And uh, they see, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, I think that uh, fascism has presented itself at times as a, a decolonizing uh, element uh, in Latin America and uh, in Asia and other places where, you know, for example, that when the uh, Japanese empire was trying to strengthen itself and, you know, formed an alliance with Italian fascism, uh, German Nazism, uh, they also presented themselves in Asia as liberators of Asia from 
you know, European colonialism. <laughs> and, uh, you know, then they carried out, you know, uh, atrocities of their own, uh, you know, in China and Indochina, Korea. So I think that, you know, nobody is exempt from this. It's not, it's not a genetic factor. It is what, what ideology, what, what, what's the organizing principle that people are operating under to, you know, form their society and generate their power. Yeah. If that's militaristic, if it's, you know, uh, hierarchical, if it's exploitative, then, uh, you know, regardless of what the uh, skin tone of somebody carrying that out is, it can be, you know, fascistic in its nature. Yeah. I like something that you said earlier, um, which I think is an interesting frame. Um, so I I feel like people in the United States, you might you might hear people like talk about the rise of fascism or the like emergence of fascism as if it's this new thing, you know? Um, and I, I, I like kind of what you how you rooted it in the formation of the formation of the United States as like a nationalistic identity with this idea that like, you know, fascism has always been here. Fascism has always been a part of the settler settler colonial project of the United States. Well, I was going to follow up on that. It's like, if you look at at the countries in which fascism came to power in Europe, they were mainly countries where they felt they were not adequate uh, empires in their own right. In other words, Spain, even Portugal, uh, France, uh, England, uh, you know, had empires. Uh, Germany, you know, came late to imperialism uh, uh, and even to uh, the formation of a German state. Mm-hmm. Uh, the German bourgeoisie was not able to really unify all the Germans into a single uh, nation. Uh, same thing with Italy. Italy was, you know, a bunch of uh, kind of mini states and city states and, and came late to uh, the formation of a national sense of Italy. And so I think that fascism presented itself as a uh, uh, overarching ideology that could galvanize, you know, uh, a nation and uh, launch it into an imperial uh, mode where it could, you know, uh, compete with other empires. <laughs> so the U.S. context is a little different because, as I say, from the very beginning, it had that element of uh, settler colonialism and a cross-class alliance in which, you know, not only the the bourgeoisie but even working people. Uh, could be induced to participate in that project of land theft and genocide. Uh, there's a famous book called How the Irish Became White by uh, Noel uh, Ignatiev or Ignatin. Talked about, you know, how white supremacy affected uh, Irish workers. And uh, what he didn't really look at was that uh, there were some Irish involved right from the very beginning in trying to overturn the land relationships between uh, settlers. They wanted, uh, you know, there was the land theft and the land hunger that they had. And so, for example, even before the question of a relation between Irish workers and black workers came up, there were Irish in the United States that wanted to overturn the agreements uh, that had been reached, let's say, in Pennsylvania between the uh, Quakers and the indigenous people in Pennsylvania. The, uh, the Irish wanted land and they wanted to participate in taking that land from the native people. So, and, and then that repercussions back in Ireland itself, because, uh, you know, that, that U.S. empire and those land thefts then affected the, the consciousness of the Irish within Ireland itself and weakened the Irish struggle for independence from, you know, British colonialism because there was a safety valve of, of the U.S. empire. And, and, and uh, so I think that, you know, it's critical to look at these things because it gives us a sense of what is at stake at different times and, 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 and what's at issue. And I think that, you know, uh, looking at the question of decolonization, looking at the question of uh, solidarity and, and unity is the flip side to this. Uh, if we only look at the power of the bourgeoisie, if we look at the power of the fascists, it can be intimidating or overwhelming or depressing. And I think that that's the, you know, when you talk about preparedness and, and some of these things, you, you're talking about uh, what are the generative powers of you know, the people themselves, uh, because imperialism and capitalism are based on a kind of parasitical relationship uh, they're, they're they're extracting wealth from the from the earth itself and from the labor of people uh, and turning it you know into a power over the earth and over the people and i think that uh, understanding that actually the you know all that wealth that is uh, that system has all the power the system has is actually coming out of the people who are oppressed and exploited in the land 
gives us a sense of what our own powers are and what our own capacity to be creative and generative are mm-hmm. that you know uh to the extent we exercise those it weakens them and i think that that's a critical understanding yeah yeah are there ways that fascism is currently manifesting that feel different from say i don't know like like 40 years ago yeah, sure well, I think the whole, you know, the whole phenomenon of social media and, and the way in which they, they very effectively organized, uh, you know, these uh, neo-fascist forces through, uh, you know, uh, the gaming, uh, hyper-masculine gaming stuff. And, and uh, uh, you know, I think uh, we talked a little bit about, the, uh, uh, I think the reason that, that people are approached me to do uh, this uh, podcast had to do with my essay in... Um, uh, no Pasaran, anti-fascist dispatches from a world uh, uh, in crisis, and um, so that that's a place where I talked about you know some of this history of different struggles and how they what lessons to extract from them. Uh, but the other book I've uh, been working on and put out recently is called uh, uh, "The Blue Agave Revolution: uh, Poetry of the Blind Rebel." This was a book I uh, was approached by uh, Oso Blanco, an indigenous uh, political prisoner here in the United States, who was involved with. Uh, actually robbing banks to support the Zapatistas in Mexico. And uh, he was getting turning the tide. The newspaper I've been working on for many years, we send free to prisoners. And he approached me, he wanted to work on a book, and he said he wanted me to work on the book with him. And uh, he had uh, the, the Poetry of the Blind Rebel is a story arc and poetry arc of his work. Uh, that is a, a story about the Mexican revolution of the early 20th century, 1910 to 1920. And it's kind of magical realism, but he asked me to write some fiction. And uh, so I wrote a, a kind of a short story cycle uh, of a three-way fight between uh, vampires, zombies, and humans. <laughs> and uh, the, oh the vampires are basically, I mean, it's Dracula. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, Dracula, there's at one point where there's a, a woman who's been, you know, trying to grapple with this and she, she forms a cross with two you know, wooden uh, tent stakes, and, and he kind of laughs and says, "Oh, you bought that old wives' tale." You know, we're, we're, <laughs> we're totally integrated into the church and uh, you know into the state. You know, basically, the, the, the vampires represent the bourgeoisie because they are vampiric and parasitic, and and they have powers. The zombies in in, in this story are are a group of incels that have captured a vampire, <laughs> and they they. Uh, they uh, they think that they can, you know, create a potion from vampire blood that will, you know, give them power over women and, and uh, you know, make them, uh, you know, and so they turn themselves into zombies. And, and uh, so then there's a sort of three-way fight between the, the, the bourgeoisie on the one hand, the, the vampires, the, the uh, uh, fascists from below, these sort of incel zombies that, you know, have, uh, have to eat brains, and then the humans who are trying to deal with both of them. And I think that that's an important understanding that, you know, there are contradictions between the vampires and the zombies, but uh, they're both our enemy. And uh, so, you know, I think that's, that's an approach that we have to understand that they're, uh, you know, it's, a, it, it's, it's not a, a simple a linear equation that's going on. There's a lot of, a lot of things happening. I think that the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, fascists from below uh, have contradictions with the fascists from above and we can take advantage of that and then uh, but we have to understand that there you know it's not uh, i think there are weaknesses uh, let me go back to this you know historically people have talked about anti-fascism and anti-imperialism and there's been an element in both of those of sort of class collaboration okay. a lot of people in anti-imperialist movement think oh well there's like a sort of a national bourgeoisie that you know also doesn't like the empire and wants to exert itself and we have to ally with them. And a lot of people in anti-fascist movements have thought, oh, well, there's, you know, uh, sort of bourgeois Democrats who also hate fascism. And I think that those have been weaknesses historically. And also the contradiction between uh, people who concentrate mostly on anti-fascism and people who concentrate mostly on anti-imperialism has weakened the people's movements. I think having a kind of overarching understanding that uh, fascism is rooted in empire, particularly settler colonialism, and that uh, there isn't uh, a contradiction. We have to find the forces of popular resistance that will overturn both, uh, you know, fascism and imperialism, and uh, you know, uh, capitalism. 
and uh, that that uh, we have to you know have a self-determined struggle for decolonization to recognize people's uh, uh, you know self-determination in in their own struggles and their own capacity to live in a different way and uh, to be to create you know the, the solidarity forever we say you know uh, build a new world from the ashes of the old and I think that uh, you know in terms of my own work I've, I've tried to although I'm you know you'd think I'm aging out at this point but I've been in, involved you know I was, uh, at every point that there's an upsurge in, in struggle you know I've tried to participate in that as part of Occupy LA and more recently I've been involved with some of the dual power organizing that's going on and I don't know how much you people are familiar with that but it is a conception you know related to let's say Cooperation Jackson in Mississippi where they're trying to figure out ways of organizing themselves economically and also resisting the power of the state and uh, so I was at the dual power gathering and uh, took place in Indiana last summer. And there's uh, one on the West Coast that's coming up uh, in uh, the Portland area. Yeah. Could you explain kind of like what for, for our listeners, like sure. what is dual power? Yeah. So dual power is, is the concept that, uh, you know, we have a power and we can exercise that power. And within the framework of uh, this contemporary society, which is so destructive, we can begin to generate and exercise that power. And that there's, a, as I said, a kind of dialectic between the power of the people and the power of the state and the corporations, the power of the fascists. And that, uh, you know, the different prefigurative elements of the kind of society we want to live in in the future can be created now. And that as we exercise that power, uh, it weakens the power of the state. It weakens the, the power of the bourgeoisie and the power of the Imperialist. So I, I I went to that dual power gathering in Indiana. I mean, it's not my bio region, but I, I did used to live in Chicago. I felt some affinities with it, and it was you know they were to talk about the idea of you know uh, what's the relationship between dual power and a three way fight. With the different conception, what the three way fight is that we are having to contend with two different enemies. You know, these fascists from below and the fascists from above the, the state and and the corporate power, and then also right wing elements. And I think that. Uh, in terms of both of those, we have to understand what are the powers that we have to organize ourselves to, you know, as I say, to apply the generative and 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 uh, regenerative powers, you know, to uh, so that people have a sense of what they're fighting for. It's not just uh, anti this and anti that. So, for example, the newspaper I've worked on for many years, Turning the Tide, originally called the Journal of Anti-Racist uh, Action or... Uh, uh, anti-racist action education research and then we changed the subtitle a few years ago to the journal of intercommunal solidarity in that sense that you have to say what you're fighting for what what are we trying to build what are we trying to create what are we creating and how does that give us the capacity to continue to resist and continue to uh you know kind of shape the future not just react always to what they're doing but actually have a proactive generative stance and so you know people's creative cultural expressions people's uh, capacity to you know do permaculture in urban environments or you know many other things like that that say you know the the we want to restore the the biological diversity you know we want to restore uh, the capacity of of uh, the soil we want to restore the the clarity of the water and the air in the process of struggling for our own liberation. And that, uh, you know, those are things that can happen and must happen now. Uh, we can't wait for you know, some revolution that will happen in the future in which, you know, will create a, a better world. We have to start in the context and into the, the interstices of the system, the places that people are, are being pulverized. And so, you know, in Los Angeles, people are involved in, you know, various kinds of mutual aid work and, you know, uh, working with the homeless, working with, uh, you know, people being evicted uh, to take over homes and, you know, restore them. And I think all those manifestations, that, that that's a question of dual power. They're, they're, we're looking at the incapacity of the people ruling the society to actually meet basic human needs, and we're trying to figure out how to meet them. Okay. And so I think that's where it coincides with this question of, you know, preparedness, is that I think that is a sense that people have to rely on their own resources, their own energies, and, and uh, kind of understanding that there's a contradiction between the system, the way it functions, and its implications and impact on us, and its incapacity, its, its powerlessness to really uh, protect people from the kinds of calamities it's creating, whether that's flooding or 
firestorms or you know all, all the other manifestations of this you know global crisis of the earth system that is growing out of capitalism we have to deal with that now we can't wait you know till sometime in the future when we have you know power quote unquote you know we have yeah. the power to start to deal with it yeah and I, like i feel like there have been different ways that people have tried to do exactly that like in the in, in the past and um i don't know like i'm thinking of like i'm thinking of like a lot of the stuff that like the black panthers were doing like creating communities that mm -hmm. they like declaring that they had power and that they had the power to build the communities that they wanted um and to preserve those communities and um then they face like they face an incredible amount of repression like as much for like arming themselves as for giving kids lunch and breakfast and um i'm wondering what in in what ways do you, does the state try to like or in what ways has like the state like tried to destabilize um like dual power um movements in the past and what can we kind of expect them to do uh now or what are they doing now does that make sense yeah uh I, you know i, I think there's always a, a two-pronged approach uh, by the state and you know sometimes it's referred to as the carrot and the stick you know it's a co-optation and uh a coercion and so uh, they always attempt both to uh uh, control, you know, as I say, modify people's thinking and try to create, you know, uh, bourgeois alternatives to liberatory uh, uh, thinking and liberatory organizing. And then simultaneously, they have the uh, repressive aspects, the criminalization of those efforts. And so in relation to the Black Panther Party, for example, they, you know, they, they were simultaneously pushing what they call black capitalism and saying, oh, yes, you know, we'll give you, you know, we'll, we'll find the sector of, of black a community that can integrate into the system. And, and then along with that, they were, you know, uh, carrying out COINTELPRO, which was a war strategy of, you know, creating contradictions inside black liberation organizations, uh, setting one against the other, trying to, you know, uh, execute, incarcerate, you know, people who were not willing to compromise their principles. So I think we have to be aware that you're seeing the same thing go on. They, you know, they, they, uh, around, policing issues, you know, this constantly want to put forward, you know, uh, different reforms and, you know, accountability measures and ways that people can, you know, uh, participate in civilian oversight mechanisms that really don't do anything. And at the same time, they're, you know, attacking people who are doing uh, cop watch or, you know, uh, 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 groups like the Stop LAPD Spying Network, which has, you know, exposed a lot of stuff about, uh, about this, you know, it's constantly being uh, targeted. So I think that those uh, that that two pronged approach by the state is something we have to be very aware of. It's it's not only uh, uh, coercion and criminalization and and uh, repression, but it's also co optation and uh, you know giving people a individual solutions and and uh, mechanisms that are uh, you know uh, you call it nonprofit industrial complex. You know this whole mechanism of, of uh, structures that are set up to get people involved in, uh, you know, grant writing and, you know, uh, looking to, you know, philanthropists to somehow support them in their work. And I think that uh, trying, you know, one of the things the Black Panther Party did was it had its own self-generated, you know, funding by going to the base community they were trying to organize and talking to, you know, small shopkeepers and talking to churches and trying to integrate that into, a, you know, these liberatory efforts. So I think that, uh, you know, looking at that model, like uh, when I started doing, uh, for example, uh, People Against Racist Terror, there were a lot of small uh, anti-racist groups around the country, and, and uh, a lot of them ended up going the route of, uh, you know, looking for grants and looking for, uh, you know, nonprofit organizations that they could fold themselves into. And I think that that kind of denatured them. They became, you know, uh, as opposed to being grassroots, they became board and staff organizations and, you know, individuals, you know, would create careers out of it. 
And I think that that, that mechanism of, of uh, transforming popular movements into uh, nonprofit organizations or non-governmental organizations that accommodate themselves to existing power structures, existing economic realities is, is one of the things that, you know, uh, we need to try to avoid happening in this current period. Yeah, that, yeah, no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's, it's funny because I feel like I'm seeing a lot of groups involved in mutual aid who are, I think, taking that lesson of the nonprofit industrial complex and, but are also trying to access large, larger swaths of money than the communities that they're part of can provide like the, this, this like model of like, it's important to like involve your community base in those things and to generate those things ourselves. Um, But there is this problem sometimes of like, you're passing the hat and the same like 20 people are kicking into the bail fund. Um, And I don't know. I think maybe this is just me being hopeful, but I'm seeing a lot of mutual aid groups kind of dip into grant writing or dip into utilizing like nonprofit statuses more than structures in order to like access funding and things like that. But what I'm but what I'm seeing is people coming at it, coming at it from like, hopefully, what is a different perspective of like taking these lessons of the past and being like, well, we don't want to become some horrifying large nonprofit, but we do want the state to give us 10 grand so that we can, uh, so that we can build infrastructure. Um, do you, do, like, I guess my question is like, is like, like, are there ways to responsibly interact with that? Or is this, is this a trap? I guess I'd have to hear more details. I, you know, I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, I think it's Im- imperative that uh, it, it has to come from below and from the, the grassroots. I think that, um, you know, I've been involved with, uh, Pacific, for example, Pacifica Radio. And, uh, you know, Pacifica is uh, listener-sponsored radio and is a constant struggle about, you know, how much uh, can, can we accept, uh, you know, Corporation of Broadcasting Funding. They, they, they cut us off some years ago and we're trying to get it back or there's, you know, struggles about trying to get some underwriting you know, it depends who you're accountable to for the money that you get in. Are you accountable primarily to the funder or are you accountable primarily to the people who are, you know, using that money and the people who uh, are, uh, you know, self-organizing uh, for, you know, community uh, power and community sustainability and, uh, you know, some of the things we're talking about of, you know, uh, self-determined uh, strategies. And, uh, you know, I, I, I do think that what happened to a lot of the, move, the 60s movements is that there was an ebb in the mass movement and then people made their separate piece. They, they, they you know, it's like people were like Flotsam and Jetsam as, as the tide of, of uh, you know, people's power movements uh, were uh, negatively impacted because of, uh, say, white supremacy, male supremacy, uh, you know, uh, uh, COINTELPRO, and an inadequate response to deal with it, then, you know, people ended up in, you know, labor unions where they were, you know, uh, doing some good work, but basically they became part of a labor bureaucracy or they ended up in government, you know, uh, social services and they were doing some good work, but they became part of that mechanism. So I think it's the critical thing is trying to, you know, keep control of what's going on in the hands of the people who are actually organizing themselves and their communities. Yeah. No, that makes sense. What are strategies that people that we should be embracing for, like, uh, countering this current current uh, escalation in fascist tendencies? Well, you know, I've done a lot of work over the years, and as I say, uh, you know, turning the tide is a newspaper. We send, uh, you know, a couple of thousand copies almost of every issue into the prisons, and we're in touch with a lot of stuff that's going on in the prisons. And I think that that's a critical place to look for some understanding about how to, how to deal with this, because you do see under, you know, what are essentially very, very naked fascist conditions of, you know, domination inside the prisons, which are, you know, very hierarchical. There's a lot of, you know, uh, uh, negative activity within the uh, the prisons themselves. There's you know the power of the guards and and and, and the the wardens in the system, and yet you find uh, you know uh, struggles going on against 
uh, racism, against sexism, for solidarity, you know, against uh, solitary confinement, people who have been victims of torture organizing themselves. And I think that uh, understanding that capacity and, and looking at that, uh, you know, th- those are some of the leading struggles in the United States. There have been hunger strikes, there have been labor strikes, uh, you know, the Alabama prisoners movement, and, you know, here in California and elsewhere. And I think that sense that, uh, you know, people under the most severe repression are actually capable of making human connections, you know, uh, among themselves and beginning to actually, uh, in a self-critical way, look at how they uh, incorporated toxic masculinity and racism into their own uh, approach to reality. And and by beginning to uh, purge themselves of those things, they can begin to create, uh, you know, multiracial solidarity among all prisoners to actually resist the conditions of incarceration and resist, you know, enslavement. So I think that, that that's very important to look at. I think that, uh, you know, here in Los Angeles, there are, you know, as I say, uh, organizations like LA Can that, that are working, you know, uh, in and among homeless people and with homeless people to organize themselves. They have street watches. They have, uh, you know, a community garden on the roof of a building. They have, you know, cultural expression. They have, uh, you know, uh, theatrical groups that, you know, uh, music, you know, choral, you know, it's like uh, all those things are, you know, uh, connect people's, uh, you know, love and rage, as I say, you know, people's ability to generate creative cultural expression and to, you know, use that to strengthen their solidarity and their unity and their ability to resist, uh, you know, the coercive power of the state or the police sweeps or to expose what's going on and, and begin to, uh, you know, put out a challenge to the way the society is organized. So I think that those are some critical things. I think that, um, you know, having the capacity to defend ourselves and, uh, you know, both physically and also legally is very, very important. I think that if you look at, you know, stuff like uh, the Stop Cop City struggle, that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the the escalation of repression and the use of, you know, charges of terrorism against people who are, you know, obviously not terrorists is, you know, indicates that the state, you know, sees this as a very, very serious threat and is trying to eradicate it and is trying to intimidate people. And I think to the extent that we can turn that around and use it to say to people, uh, you know, is this the kind of state you want to live in? Is this the kind of society you want to have? It is a way to begin to um, change minds and hearts of people who, you know, have been going along with the system. I, you know, I lived through a whole period where, you know, we freed many, many political prisoners. We freed Bobby, we freed Huey, we freed Angela. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the, even the Panther 21 in New York, you know, it's like the, 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 the jury met for about 30 minutes and acquitted them all because the, the, uh, the power of, of those organized forces, you know, affected the consciousness of, of uh, you know, the jurors. <laughs> and I, I think that that understanding that uh, we actually have the power to begin to, to uh, shape not just our own consciousness, but to, you know, wage that struggle with uh, people to, you know, which side are you on? And to give people a sense that there is a side that they can identify with and become part of and transform their own lives and transform the society in the process of doing that. And so I think, you know, for example, the stuff around preparedness is vital. You know, we're, we're living in a world in which there are you know, these incredibly destructive wildfires, floods, you know, tornadoes. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, uh, and it's very, very clear that the state is, you know, incapable of uh, 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 even dealing with it after the fact, let alone preventing it. And so I think that that gives us an opening to talk to very, very wide sectors of, of the population in cities and in, in the rural areas as well. I think that, you know, the, for example, the Anti-Racist Action Network at its heyday had hundreds of chapters around the country in uh, small towns. And, you know, because young people were in their own high schools and, you know, music scenes were suddenly faced with this threat of fascism. And said, hey, we have to get organized. And uh, so I think that, you know, uh, uh, we need to see these things as opportunities to really, in a very, very massive way, begin to engage with people and begin to, uh, offer an alternative way of thinking about the world that that uh, gives some hope and some prospect of of uh, you know uh, dealing uh, not just with the the crises and the repression but you know a way forward for people. Yeah, yeah, and that kind of ties into um, I I love that 
you 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 use this this phrase um uh we we've had this phrase come up a lot with um uh Cindy Milstein um who we've interviewed on the podcast before and who we've like uh, just published uh their newest uh book last year uh Trianarchism for Life and they talk a lot about prefigurative mm-hmm. organizing and prefigurative spaces and um, I think this kind of ties into what you're talking about, but I was wondering if you you could kind of give give your take on the importance of prefigurative building prefigurative spaces. Yeah, you know, I, I think that we have to find ways to bring people together and uh, and give people a sense, as I say, of of our own power and our own creative and generative uh, uh, capacities. So I think that that says that uh, you know. Uh, you know, whether it's free schools or it's uh, breakfast for children or, you know, any of the things that the Black Panther Party did and that many other uh, people of color movements did in, in a certain period are, are here at our disposal. There's, there's you know, um, I know, for example, there's a crisis in child care and child rearing that's going on, you know, and, and so organizing people. Uh, into childcare collectives, you know, and, and uh, people, you know, jointly taking responsibility for each other's children and creating, you know, trust relationships that make people feel comfortable with that, uh, you know, would be one example. Uh, you know, you know, the, uh, in food deserts, you know, organizing people to, you know, break up some sidewalks and grow some food. And, you know, uh, you know, I think they're one of the things that I've come to understand from doing this work for a long time is we live in a kind of uh, fractal or holographic world in which the same contradictions are shot all the way through the system. It's like at any level of magnification in, in, in fractals. You know, if you look at the coast of uh, uh, Norway or something in the fjords, you know, it's the same pattern is reproduced at every level. And, you know, in a holographic uh, uh, image, you know, any piece of the hologram has the whole hologram in it. So I think that that uh, any area that people want to choose to struggle in, I think as long as they understand that they're struggling against the entirety of the system in that area and that there's an enmity built into that relationship between the system and between what they're trying to do, I think that's the critical understanding. So if people are engaged in you know, community gardens, uh, as long as they understand that uh, that's a piece of a larger struggle to like create a world in which, you know, uh, you know, nature has has uh, uh, a space to you know reassert itself, and that people can eat uh, you know different food and and better food, and you know any area that you know it, whether it's the you know struggle over transgender, you know uh, uh, non-binary or anything else. It, once people see that it's the same system throughout uh, that they're struggling with, it, it lays a basis for solidarity and for unity and for. Uh, you know, kind of a, a struggle on many fronts simultaneously that says, uh, you know, it's sort of the war of the flea. We, you know, the the system is vulnerable in a million places because the system is in all those places simultaneously. And, and you know, they have a lot of money and a lot of power to deal with that. And, and they, they're organized in these systems of, you know, uh, command and control, as I say, and, 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 uh, artificial intelligence and all the rest of it to, you know, kind of keep track of everything. But, but we're in all those places simultaneously as well, because we're everywhere and, and and trying to coordinate those things, I think is very, very important. This is, this is a little bit of a backup, but I remember that I wanted to ask you about it. Um, So like we're, we're like currently seeing like a pretty, pretty pretty horrific and intense wave of um of legislations against against trans people and against queer people right. non-binary mm-hmm. people and yeah i'm i'm wondering what your take on that is as kind of like a like an indicate if if we have to imagine like fascism as like a spectrum of like like where we're where we could be going like what what what, what is that kind of legislation and like repression an indicator of this is a little bit of a leading question, I guess, but. Yeah. You know, I, I think that obviously fascism always tries to target the people they think are the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and also, as I say, I think they want to create, you know, what they see as wedge issues that they can use to divide people and, and, uh, 
segment people off. And so I think to the extent that we can uh, reverse that and uh, we can try to unite people around uh, a different conception. Uh, you know, one of the things that struck me is that, um, you know, you you saw that they sort of had this victory with, uh, uh, they, you know, controlling the courts and, and uh, overturning Roe v. Wade, okay. for example. And, and so then there, there, uh, it, what that, un, that, that revealed was actually how I, how narrow that really was the forces that were pushing for that, because then, you know, Nebraska and Kansas and these various States, you know, suddenly, you know, uh, you know, electoral uh, reinforcement of abortion rights uh, happening. Mm-hmm. And I think the same thing can happen here. I think that, you know, uh, there are so many families that, you know, uh, their concern is about their own kids or, you know, uh, and, and the parental rights, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it, it reveals that these fault lines go through the whole system. That's what I'm trying to say. It's like, you know, you know all of their power is based on, on kind of repression and on, uh, exploitation and to the extent that people begin to see that and how it impacts on them, it opens up, uh, you know, vistas of possibility to say, uh, you know, if you're concerned about your child's, you know, right to, you know, get the, you know, medical uh, assistance they need, uh, why is the state, you know, coming in to, you know, prevent you from doing that? And what are the interests that, you know, are, are trying to, uh, you know, uh, depict this as a threat to the stability of society or something. And, and yeah. so, uh, you know, I, I think in that sense, every crisis is an opportunity. I think the other thing that I did want to talk about a little bit was the whole uh, uh, COVID, you know, the pandemic, uh, you know, the, going back to the, the prepper thing. You know, I think you saw, yeah. again, you know, a lot of right wing uh exploitation of that issue and uh you know so i think that uh you know to the extent that we can get out ahead of that you know and look at okay so for example a society like cuba which had a completely different relationship uh to this because they're organized in a different way and uh, you know they actually have a public health system and they actually created their own um vaccines not the ones from big pharma here in this country and, uh, you know, begin to get people to think about that. And why is Cuba, you know, stigmatized by this society? Why are they uh, embargoing, you know, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, all these countries, you know, the connection to a a global sense of, you know, what are the possibilities in the world? What are the prefigurative formations that are happening inside imperialism by countries that are, you know, actually resisting it. And so if you look at, you know, the medical care system and, in Cuba, uh, for example, you know, they have, uh, you know, uh, every neighborhood has a doctor that lives in the neighborhood and, and uh, you know, nursing staff and, and other people uh, and, and works door to door with the people in that neighborhood to, you know, uh, be concerned about their health and their well-being, not just, you know, responding to a particular medical crisis. And then they have, you know, that systematized and, and uh, you know, they so in that context, they were able to vaccinate people, not through coercive measures, but through trusted, you know, people that were part of their community that, you know, could reassure them about uh, the fact that they developed the vaccines themselves. And that, you know, the, the, the Cuban uh, pharmaceutical industry came out of uh, their effort to deal with chemical and biological warfare by the United States. The U.S. was like putting in a swine fever as a way to destroy you know, pigs that that uh, every family in Cuba had their own little pig to raise and, you know, supplement their food. And yeah. uh, so they, they developed animal vaccines first to protect their, you know, those animals. And then they worked their way up from there. So I think yeah. that, that that sense of you know, I had a good friend recently who passed away uh, from uh, uh, complications of diabetes, and the Cubans have developed uh, treatments for diabetes and to prevent, you know, uh, amputation of limbs and other stuff. And all of that is unavailable to us because of the, you know, U.S. imperialist embargo in Cuba and blockade. And giving people a sense that, you know, there actually are people living 
in the world in much better conditions. You know, the United States is number one in incarceration, number one in, in uh, you know, many, many social ills, number one in, in uh, you know, overdose deaths and, uh, you know, on and on and on. Yeah. Number one in evictions and, and, and begin to, you know, really give a sense to people that this system has nothing to offer them but destruction and that, you know, we have the capacity to create something different. Yeah. Thing. I have only to say that yes, yes to all of that. We are we're kind of nearing the end of the recording, not of not of the world. Um <laughs> and yeah, is there any any kind of last things that you want to say before I'll, I'll ask you to plug anything that you want to plug? Um but in I mean that was such a beautiful wrap up, I feel like. But if there's anything else you want to talk about that we haven't talked about, uh, well, you know, years ago I was a part of a group in in Berkeley that uh, took over the California College of Arts and Crafts to create an anti-war uh, uh, poster making facility during the uh, Vietnam War, and and out of that group mm-hmm. there was a, a singing group called the Red Star Singers, and they had a song called "The Power of the People Is the Force of Life." Mm-hmm. And I, I think we really have to have that sense. It's, you know, it is a dialectic. That's I think the main thing I want to try to convey is that, you know, to the extent that we can build the people's power, it actually weakens that uh, system. And, uh, you know, the, just that sense that all the power that they have is actually derived from their exploitation and oppression of people. And that mm-hmm. that's our power, you know, uh, manifested against us. And if we take our power back, it actually does weaken them and it, you know, increases our possibilities of, of, of uh, you know, struggling to for a different world. So I, I will do the plugs. You know, I, I, for 35 yeah. years I've been working, and I, do, I actually wanted to sort of break the story here. I, I'm looking for a collective that will take over Turning the Tide. Okay. I've been putting it out for a long, long time. Uh, you know, this is volume 35, number two, is just about to come out. It's uh, uh, it's uh, uh, up online at antiracist.org. You can reach me at antiracistaction underscore LA at yahoo.com. But, uh, you know, like I say, I'm 76. I, I'm currently the interim general manager of KPFK Radio in, in Los Angeles, and it's a huge uh, time commitment. And, and I want I want to see the paper, you know, become in some way or sh- shape institutionalized to begin, you know, to continue to meet, uh, you know, send out the 17, 1800 copies to prisoners. And so if anybody's interested in taking over that project and fulfilling that commitment, I, I'd love to hear from them. Um, yeah. And then, as I say, I, 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 I'm in, uh, I have a chapter in um, No Pasaran, uh, Anti-Fascist Dispatches from a World in Crisis, edited by Shane Burley from AK Press. And uh, I contributed a lot uh, of uh, material archival stuff and was interviewed extensively for We Go Where They Go, uh, the story of anti-racist action from PM Press, uh, two really, really important books and well worth reading. And then uh, I did uh, self-published and, and co-authored uh, The Blue Agave Revolution, uh, the uh, poetry of the blind rebel uh, with Oso Blanco, Byron Shane Chabuck. Uh, and you can get that again from anti-racist action. So it's uh, PO Box 1055, Culver City, California, 90232, and uh, online is antiracist.org. Wonderful. And is the in the the Blue Agave Revolution? Um, is that is that where we can find your short story about the three way fight between vampires, yeah. humans, yeah, and like, zombies? It's, it's, it's a kind of a novella. There, it's like a, about seven chapters of, of a longer thing, and there's also a, a shorter one about uh, a, a group of teenage mutants uh, called Black Block that uh, they have these kind of minor uh, uh, powers. One of them can, you know, it's a uh, um, uh, uh, jackpot and crackpot crackpot can kind of break out of anything and jackpot can just affect the odds slightly in their favor and you know a, a bunch of other young people non-binary and so on so uh you know uh, but there are also some different uh, essays uh, of mine in there and a lot of poetry and yeah um just the mathematics of uh uh, uh, the enormity of social and economic inequality people don't understand exactly what it is but essentially uh, uh, about 45% of the U.S. population has the equivalent of uh, 50 cents in assets. 
Uh, you know, people don't understand exactly what the class divide and the contradictions inside the society are. You know, we're, we're, we're duped into thinking that this is the richest country in the face of the earth and the most powerful. And, you know, there's there's an enormous uh, hidden social cost and, and pain behind that. And we have to figure out how to galvanize that into the power that actually those people possess and the creativity they have. Yeah. Great. Well, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, yeah, thanks for and, me. Yeah, of course. And um, I'll, we'll drop links to um, all of the things that you mentioned in the show notes for people to find. Terrific. And yeah, thank you. Okay, take care. Have a great day. All right. You too. Good fun. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, then go out and live like the empire is dying and then tell us about it. And if you would like to support this podcast, uh, you can do so by telling people about it. You can support this podcast by talking about it on social media, rating and reviewing and doing whatever the nameless algorithm calls for. But if you would like to support us in other sillier ways, you can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness, which is our publisher. Uh, strangers in a tangled wilderness is a radical media publishing collective that puts out this podcast as well as a few other podcasts. Our Patreon helps pay for things like transcriptions or our lovely audio editor bursts, who is the host of the final straw, as well as going on to support strangers in a tangled wilderness and a few of the other podcasts we put out like our monthly anarchist literature or otherwise podcast, Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness, as well as the Anarcho Geek Power Hour, which is a podcast for people who love movies and hate cops. And we would like to give a very special shout out to a few of our uh, Patreon subscribers. Princess Miranda, Ben Ben, Anonymous, Funder, Hans, Oxalis, Janice and Odell, Page, Ali, Paparuna, Milica, Boise Mutual Aid, Theo, Hunter, Sean, SJ, Page, Mickey, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Cat J, Starro, Jennifer, Eleanor, Kirk, Sam, Chris, Micaiah, and the infamous Haas the Dog. Thank you so much. We could not do this without you. And I hope that everyone out there is doing as well as they can right now with everything that's going on and we'll see you soon.